Welcome to a new episode of Becoming a Post-Growth Planner, Obstacles and Challenges to Changing Roles and Practices. My name is Christian Lamker. I'm Assistant Professor for Sustainable Transformation and Regional Planning at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. And today we move a bit southwest towards Spain. We might also get some UK insights. So I'm very happy to have Sophia with me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So Sophia, who are you? What's your background? Uh, so I'm just starting a postdoc uh, working for an ERC project in Spain, and I'm coming to this with a PhD in uh, actually archaeology and classics, so a bit of a strange transition. Um, I was part of a project that looked at ancient cities, how they were planned, and the legacy of that, both in terms of ideas and their material legacy, and my project focused in large part upon 19th, 20th century modernism and the politics of town planning as an emerging discipline in the context of industrialization and public health. So obviously when we have a really radical replanning of cities as well as millions of narratives about the city and the city of the future. And my PhD was looking at the politics of those plans and how new projects, so probably most familiar with Ebenezer Howard's Garden City, for example, were based upon this really long-term tradition of utopian thinking in the West of ideal cities and schemes relying upon ideas from Plato and Aristotle. Yeah, so quite an um, ama amazing history of uh, engaging with uh, urban histories, urban ideals, utopias, uh, and also your background as researcher and artist. So you have looked into ancient cities, ideals, futurism. How did this enrich your understanding of our contemporary growth problems then? Well, I think most obviously I see a repetition of themes that planning has yet to solve really housing issues, environmental degradation, degradation of quality of place. But I think um, beyond that, it's more that I see patterns repeating in how we are responding to the problems growth creates, which suggests that something fundamental is yet to change. So obviously um, the history of utopia, I think we see reinvented with some solutions for urban sustainability today that are um, pushing forward this idea of like a contained local settlement solution, uh, such as the smart city, even eco-communes, which are characterized by having these fixed number of inhabitants managed by technologies to ensure their good behavior in individual daily life um, is regulated, right? And this is something that we see in Plato through to Howard. And what we really need to be remembering is that they have represented a top-down attempt at social engineering that places limits on cultural change and assumes that both society and the natural environment are stable and can be controlled through planning, which I think is quite a reductive picture of what planning can do. And much of the literature is arguing that visions for post-growth are in favor of experimentation, open-endedness, messiness, and diversity, right? Even mm. aesthetics seemed ugly mm. rather than these polished, finished visions of the city that ignore also its embeddedness within like a bigger picture. Yeah, I see there, there are some who say that post-growth that are a bit too visionary, utopian, unre unrealistic, as you've looked into old utopias, let's say, or <laughs> other visions, uh, could we then maybe avoid having visions and be much, have a different approach to post-growth? Or how does, how do, should we deal with utopian vision and visionary ideas? Well, I don't have a problem with utopia in say, I think it's really important to be thinking about, you know, new horizons and it's often used in that way, right? Like what can we strive for if we don't have utopia? But I think it becomes a problem if you're making that something that's a finished vision. Um, you can have a utopian city based upon the principles of 
how it's planned, right? Like I know that in Savini's book, um, they have dwelling, being, etc. That's much better than having justice and health as predefined by, you know, very specific criteria. And um, yeah, like unchanging is the main issue, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, what does it mean, or maybe for for the language of uh, planning? You mentioned dwelling, being. It's different terms than, say, justice. Yeah, I, mean, I think about this a lot. I think because the history of classical reception really alerts you to the politics of how the city, you know, quote unquote, is conceptualized and what that facilitates. And um, the idea that cities are productive bodies has a very long history in Western thought, and I don't think that we're rid of that now. Like cities have often been thought of in organic terms of political ends and the language of planning still reflects that to some degree you know we have degenerative regenerative cities nodes in a biological network has a metabolism needs a bodily circulation mm -hmm. and when you look at how that's worked um in the past it's it's been to promote the movement of goods and capitals if these were the lifeblood of the city and translated into things like you know straight streets um the conversion of the city from a corrupt body into productive space, even, you know, masculine and mechanical. And thinking about that language as how it's functioned to promote planning and in connection to economic growth, it points towards the need perhaps for a different conceptualization of cities, rethinking of the planning language to avoid reinforcing those values. So that's why I like the dwelling being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when, yeah. when we look at current ur European urban policy, there is a lot about cities also as the producers of knowledge, of innovation, and then also of mm -hmm. uh, economic growth. But if we look into history, and you're more an expert in that than I am, uh, planning <laughs> was also a, cr a crucial tool to deal with hygiene, health, pro health problems, to provide adequate living conditions, especially to the working class, starting in the UK, but then also elsewhere. Uh, so history was a lot about different things than growth machines or cities as producers of uh, knowledge and economic growth. So what are then crucial points to keep in mind when we think about the future of post-growth planning? Are there some past critiques that we should maybe now revisit to mm -hmm. anchor post-growth planning? Um, so it's worth saying that my PhD was anchored in a sort of Marxist perspective on these issues. Um, uh, as a disclaimer, but I, if we focus on health and hygiene, which is central to, um, you know, providing for basic needs and things, I think, again, it's important to remember that these things have been defined historically in different ways, and that's facilitated different types of planning and governance, typically top down, um, because, right, governments share the aspirations to make their cities healthy and just, and these ideals are good and a reflection of good governance. Um, but Typically, that's been translated into things like grid systems and social housing, which, okay, are making improving hygiene, but also acting as methods of surveillance, um, relocating the poor to the peripheries in pursuit of a more aesthetic, ordered city. And you see that, you know, with any regime of hygiene, for example, Christian ideas about purification leading to church building and the organization of daily life and economy around the church. Um, so I think when you think about the future of post-growth planning and how it can act as a tool for providing basic needs and health, finding socially and just organized cities, it's probably good to revisit Marxist critiques because they highlight that even when you have the best intentions in mind, it's important to avoid those top-down definitions of what hygiene is, rather to include different voices and a diverse toolkit in that definition um, to think about these groups 
rather than planning for them without their inclusion. And of course, that whatever happens in the name of hygiene has much wider ramifications at, le at the level of social and economic organization. Yeah, I think we touched upon an inherent tension in the post-growth debates that is between some necessity from top down for a large scale change, given um, scarce resources and planetary issues. And on the other side, a very huge value on localism, um, on local circumstances, on peoples and their qualities of life. Um, how would you see this this balance as somehow should we move more towards top down approaches or uh, is the solution very bottom um, bottom up? Um, this is very complex. Obviously, you have to think about the state and um, whether you have a good state. <laughs> what what does it have at its disposal to to do? How yeah? How should it basically intervene? Um, I don't have an answer for that. I think it should be a bit of a blur, maybe have a combination of the two. Yeah, I think that is the crucial question, right? And I don't know. In the post growth planning book, for example, it wasn't clear on that either, I think. <laughs> uh, do you recognize differences between uh, the UK and Spain and also your different research environments, how to deal with uh, such questions? How change towards post-growth or more in general urban change should should happen or should be supported oh you know i haven't looked into this too much but i know that for example the spanish minister for consumption is a staunch degrowther um and i've seen the changes that they're doing in barcelona to enclose the superblocks which is amazing um and i'm not that clear on the picture of UK planning I'm like very much like a 19th century person mm -hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if I can offer you any insights about the contrast between the two apart from Pontevedra as a 15-minute city I think maybe because of the pattern of urbanization in Spain where you have more of these you know um settlement types of medieval mini uh settlements the 15-minute city might work better here and that's sort of in alignment with post-growth I don't know if I can offer anything that useful on that, though. In your current postdoctoral research, you work a lot on postgrowth futures, potential imaginaries. Uh, mm -hmm. But an essential element of your work is really art and lots of arti artistic drawings on your website and that all you also use to illustrate your work um, and also music. How does mm -hmm. art influence the perspective that you take on postgrowth and planning? A rather different entry point than... Um, many others I've talked to in the podcast so far? This is a big one, I suppose. So personally, I paint and illustrate because it helps me to distill concepts that I come across in my research. And so art is a useful research method for me because I think it helps me to think through my ideas, but it's also a way to engage students and communicate complexity because it's much easier to include a diverse range of people when you can communicate in different ways, right? So art is about accessibility and democratizing knowledge in that sense. It's really about seeing art as a mode of knowledge production that is valid and complementary to traditional science research. Um, and for that reason, I've been illustrating our book, Critiques of Growth. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that is um, the responsibility that comes with artistic creation. And I'm always thinking about how art and the symbolic can promote certain types of thinking and behaving um, because these aspects are so part of how we live our lives in cities. And I'm coming to this with a PhD that looked at fascist urban planning, right? So the artistic symbolics, such a big part of that and brought together by planners who basically made 
the city into a stage. Um, so an understanding that life was richly cultivated um, through artistic methods in connection to, of course, capitalist practices and that planning can work in such a way. Um, also, obviously, art and economics are interrelated practices. Um, I've got an MA from Sotheby's, which is the most elitist, uh, <laughs> one of the most elitist art institutions in the world, <laughs> uh, marked by inequality and limited access and the seeing of art as capital and commodity, et cetera. So I'm very much aware about uh, that art can be used to gentrify and homogenize cities as well uh, to make uh, spaces for consumption. Or to say, you know, if, how would I position art as a vehicle to envisage um, and communicate post-growth? I think there are two or three points I can make if I can keep rambling um, broadly. So I think that, you know, and obviously many plans already are doing this, uh, using artistic methods as part of the planning toolkit because you can engage diverse people in urban issues. So there's some amazing work done by the Dutch planner Goitska Zilstra um, with children and LGBTQI plus in planning, where you do art workshops, which integrate different perspectives and necessarily need to uh, lead to more experimental outcomes. Second, you know, going back to the point that I made at the start, art can offer post-growth a way to generate those attractive alternative imaginaries, which are really crucial to contesting the already super artistic, flashy, normalized visions of the future you know, as the Audi car, for example. So yeah, we have a set of post-growth planning principles like dwelling being, but it's important to ask what that might sound like, feel like, um, look like to create things for people to experience the possibility of difference and encourage kind of culture of experimentation with that. And then because we can spend a lot of time talking about imaginaries, it's probably also important to think about art as a practice in itself with economic consequences, which can complement the work of post-growth planning. So planning is not just a set of infrastructures that happens in connection with other activities. Um, and the seeing of artistic spaces as potential allies is probably an important connection there. So to give an example, I don't know if you went to Documenta, in Castle. Uh, not me personally, or not to this one, to the last one. Yeah, okay. So Rang, it's pretty um, famous by this point, I think Rangrupa, the Indonesian art collective, um, brought together this exhibition in Castle recently. And I've been looking a bit at them, as hopefully to do some um, research with them. They have a centre called The Good School, which is built in a former warehouse. Um, and this is a quote, a space for thinking and knowledge production that enables economic self-organization um, by offering artistic services. Anyone active in good school can receive a salary and they have what we call an ecosystem formed through a diversity of people, knowledge and skills whose interconnectedness and networking um, and knowledge market forms an ecosystem. So these spaces are really echoing the sense of conviviality and self-organization, which are at the heart of post-growth and we can probably think about them in connection with post-growth planning because they have economic um, agency, if that makes sense. If we turn that a bit more bottom-up, um, could it also be a tool instead of discussing or writing or debating arguments to, I don't know, make more paintings together, uh, draw something together to, um, to gain these visionaries, get more of the joint understanding that we might not fully get by the established tools of usually communicating, telling stories maybe, or writing texts? 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point. It sort of references what I was saying about the normal practice of science and how when you start to look in different ways that can generate different outcomes. I think also maybe exhibitions are a um, useful uh, sort of mechanism in that sense as well, because they can show you what's possible. Like as exhibitions are a creative practice, right? So um, for example, Cecily Olson curated the 2019 Oslo Biennale on the theme of degrowth and asked architects to make works informed by politics of repair, care and maintenance. Um, so really like a different sort of architecture and those can be uh, sources of inspiration and um, experimentation as well. Yeah, uh, what would you say it's, it's really crucial to get some positive real life change from such mm -hmm. art exhibitions and so forth to not only have a momentum of a nice feeling, but also some real change coming out of that? Yeah, I suppose that's a challenge <laughs> <laughs> to find a financial mo model for how that might happen and to make space for experimentation in a system that's, you know, wants to guarantee an outcome. I feel at some point planning might be a nice tool to then say we have agreed on this way, so let's also um, fix it in some way and take some steps forward that go beyond, okay, now we have the idea, um, mm -hmm. but also making an idea visible, tangible, and also to some degree making an idea maybe binding. Not, yeah. not only end up it's a nice idea today and tomorrow we've forgotten about it, but... Mm -hmm. To lock it in. Yeah, I think one of the things that Rangrupa really focuses on is the legacy of an exhibition. So that, for example, obviously exhibitions happen in city spaces, so they are already a part of the city and its memory and um, the way that people maybe behave there even. Um, but I'm planning off as a way to really bring that legacy into material reality. The main point that I really want to make is that you know, there are two attempts here to enact systemic change, post-growth planning, and also to take art away from promoting capitalism, and that they can probably work with each other to co-shape the economy and cities. I read through some of your works before we talked today, or actually <laughs> earlier, and I read one sentence in one of your last writings, um, or a quote, urbanization is killing us. You know, an idea that probably many degrowth and post-growth activists and researchers share. But post-growth planning also puts a large hope that there is potential to change and that we are not doomed to um, to fail. So maybe based on your work, do you have recommendations to planning academics in particular as you're also doing your postdoc now to become part of this positive change and maybe also to have hope that this change is possible? Um, this is also a massive question. Mm -hmm. I think, so, I mean, my obvious first thought was that you probably can't be neutral you have to be political like you can't have a neutral research stance on this and secondly this is possibly quite a selfish call obviously I'm working for this ERC project Prospera which is trying to challenge the assumption that growth is good and asking if we reorganize our systems and institutions what changes to social life and order might occur that are more compatible with planetary and human well-being um, and I'm working on urban planning and it'd be really cool to hear from planning academics who also want to discuss these subjects, I think, to uh, bring together a community around more specifically art and planning. Um, also because I'm setting up an art section in the Degrowth Journal and 
hope to use that as a platform um, to think about these things in connection to different methodologies. So, you know, whether that's painting, exhibitions, et cetera. So I'd recommend that to planning academics um, if they want to become a part of the change, yeah. Uh, how far do you see the scope of art then? I mean, there is some connection <laughs> to um, to art, like muralism. Um, it, it's very visible in public space. Whereas, I mean, painting exhibitions is something that can be in public space, but also in kind of more closed off uh, ex exhibition spaces. So what would you say is the crucial maybe scope of art that helps us there forward? I think it just opens it doesn't have a scope as sorry it does have a scope but it's not like a bounded one as in I think when you introduce art you don't know what the outcome is and I know that sounds very washy but actually it's a method that can't guarantee you any particular outcome which is probably important for what post-growth planning wants in that it's not I don't no. know. I, I wouldn't say it's necessary for post-growth planning, but if you talk to practitioners, it's all usually, okay, if we do that, what will come out of that? Yeah. And that means you need to predefine the outcome. And then if the outcome is too distant, like post-growth is, you usually can't even think of the first step because practitioners or politicians might say the outcome is just not envisionable. So um, mm -hmm. we can't do the first step. And what you say is more, it's washy. Do That's something and uh, we see what, <laughs> uh, what gets visualized or what comes out of that. Yeah, I think it's experimentation and also very challenging for people to think in different ways and has the potential to, yeah, bring, bring other, you know, much more like co, this is the wrong word, co-thinking, co, um, a more holistic sort of approach to these problems. Not focusing too much on the end product, but on... Um on getting different thoughts together and then um, the then process be, yeah, yeah. open onto the washy process and uh, how it then. Um... <laughs> I like this concept. Yeah. The washy process. I think I'm being comfortable with that, right? Because being comfortable with uncertainty and risk is a big part of that. I mean, um, you, you, you talk about experimentation and if it's a real experimentation, it can fail. You don't know, know what can, what really gets out of that. And there are too many of these experiments that are called experiments, but where there is no way to fail. Uh, the outcome is almost clearly given. And then mm. such a call for a more open, washy process um, could be a nice way to do real exper experiments. Yeah, I think that you summarized that more eloquently than I did. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what are, what is your, your agenda for this year to take uh, take your thoughts further? Um, so I'm going to be going to the Joint Research Centre in March, which is the European uh, Union's knowledge production um, service. I think that's not the right um, acronym. They have a programme called SciArt, which is about putting artists and scientists together to think about problems uh, for policy. And... Uh, the theme for the project is naturearchy. And so what I'm hoping to do is observe that and look at how, yeah, look at how that process can work and what kinds of outcomes come out. Yeah, my argument being obviously that it's important to have art as part of policymaking um, and as a research method. So I'll be there till June.
Yeah, uh, we speak in January 2023, so uh, later this year, <laughs> we, we will see how this uh, further develops. Sophia, before we come to an end, uh, like all others in this podcast, um, I will ask you to finish one sentence for me. That is the sentence post-growth planning is. Post-growth planning is about making space for alternatives and experimentation, including artistic communities and practices, which have the potential to transform social-spatial relations. Thanks, Sophia. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for joining us today from Pontevedra in, in Spain. And all the best for your upcoming research tasks, your new visions and the ideas and all the engagement you put into post-growth and also planning. Thank you. Thank you. It was really fun. Thanks.